0: Today we are going to focus on higher education sector. Uh, earlier we had uh, we, we we hosted an extensive discussion on school education how national education policy is trying to bring a change uh, the way school education uh, systems and organization how they are going to reconfigure the entire processes. Uh, today we are going to focus on higher education. And uh, uh, thank you, ma'am, uh, for. Uh, uh, giving us this opportunity to interact with you and also uh, to hear from you, uh, the various challenges and also various uh, debates that we come across these days on national education policy, uh, and get some clarifications and also give, get some insights on uh, national education policy with respect to, especially in uh, higher education sector uh, uh, in today's webinar. Uh, Ma'am, before I start, uh, I would like you to give a brief on um, uh, higher education and national education policy, how the committee has uh, tried to address national education policy, uh, 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 I mean, try to address higher education um, uh, by national education policy.
1: Yeah, thank you, uh, Dr. Dhanuraj, and uh, thank you to the CPPR team and all who are attending the webinar today. Um, As far as the committee to draft the NEP was concerned, both as far as school education or higher and professional, including technical uh, teacher education and vocational education and so on. As I was saying, we have been actually seized about the ground realities uh, that had affected uh, that affects the higher education sector, particularly uh, the, all the verticals within the sector as such. And in particular, we were very concerned in higher education about the fact that our youth are not having the kind of uh, relevant jobs related to their area of education, and there are a lot of Im- imbalances in the quality of education across the institutions. And the fact that uh, as a country, we are committed to the sustainable development goals, that the uh, embedding of the ODL education and vocational education has been quite limited. And uh, if we keep having this approach, it is quite possible that uh, you would not be able to actually mainstream uh, these within the higher education uh, sector. And also because of the technological changes uh, that were taking place, uh, particularly with the advent of artificial intelligence and machine learning and so on, uh, we were actually feeling that the silo-based education that we are offering uh, might possibly be uh, out of sync with what the global scenario is. So uh, basically the uh, approach uh, by looking at the reforms in higher education is how to increase the competitive edge of our students in higher education and the higher education institutions uh, uh, at the institutional level also. And if that had to take place, if we were to be sort of having relevant uh, education for our youngsters, then we need to have a transformation. And therefore, uh, the chairman often uses a word, that the policy, the NEP 2020, is not an incremental reform. It is a transformative reform. It it seeks to transform the institutions, the academic uh, curricula, the pedagogical approaches, the regulatory systems, uh, and particularly on governance, the committee as, um, I mean, unanimously, the committee had felt that there had to be a lot of uh, regulatory reforms that is necessary. Because one, that we found that it was very stifling. We found that it was uh, an over-concentration of uh, of powers within um, regulatory bodies. And because of that over-concentration, with all due respect to UGC and AICTE and the National Council for Teacher Education, They have been sort of not capable of handling regulation and funding and accreditation and standard setting which all seem to be sort of amorphously becoming uh, too unwieldy for them to manage. So while making the, while formulating the policy, uh, certain things remained, I I mean one thing that we need to understand while we held two different webinars for school and higher, the chapter one of the NEP 2020 basically outline certain common underlying principles, uh, which we bil- begins with this idea that every child is unique, has certain unique potentials, and therefore we need to nurture that unique potential. And uh, accordingly, it is in tune with that, that we have made a whole lot of reforms towards the holistic multidisciplinary education. And I may mention here that the draft NAP 2019 used a very commonly accepted terminology globally, that is liberal arts education. But uh, in Indian context, the liberal arts education, the spirit of the liberal arts education was not seemingly understood by a lot of stakeholders. And therefore, there was a feeling that we were going to sideline STEM subjects altogether and go into only focusing on social sciences and humanities and so on. And therefore, we came about with this more uh, commonly acceptable terminology of holistic, multidisciplinary education. We also, in the higher education, talked about the multiplicity of institutions. It is good to say we are a very large higher education system, and that uh, we have thousand universities and forty thousand colleges, thirty thousand standalone institutions. The statistics are, you know, quite. Uh, alarm, uh, quite uh, satisfying in a certain sense in terms of quantitative numbers. But what is distressing is to note that these are at various various levels of quality and these are governed by different set of rules and called by a complexity of terminologies of central universities, IITs, NITs, which are institutions of national importance. Then you have the state universities, affiliating universities, unitary universities, private universities, deemed universities. So that entire complexity, we thought there is a need for a kind of a rationalization. Then comes the concern in terms of the two major stakeholders of the students and the teachers and what kind of ecosystems have to be provided so that they can be optimally uh, sort of engaged and also allow for optimization of their talents and their potentials. So a whole lot of recommendations on how to create the optimal learning environments for students and at the same time have energized, motivated and capable faculty. The issues relating to equity and inclusion and the nomenclature of the socially and economically disadvantaged groups is a new area because 86 policy had separate subsections for SCs, STs, women, minorities, uh, differently abled and so on. Here, we have gone and created a sort of a genus of saying, trying to say that all these categories would belong to the socially and economically disadvantaged groups. At, at the same time, the policy looks at seeing the public and the private institutions not in a state of conflict, recognizing the role of the private sector, both in school and in higher education, and saying that if they need to be leveraged and they need to contribute, then a level playing field has to be provided and while at the same time emphasizing and underscoring the fact that education is a public good and cannot be commercialized and cannot therefore become a profit making enterprise but at the same time we wanted that internal governance systems must be a combination of greater autonomy of higher education institutions with a equal balancing of accountability in fact the five pillars of the nep 2020 of access equity quality affordability and accountability it is very very critical that you hold internal you create internal systems of checks and balances and hold all those who are responsible being accountable for the tasks and for the responsibilities that they have so robust board, board of governors that we are talking about the whole lot of reforms in the regulatory structure and the idea of promoting internationalization, encouraging ODL and vocational education, transforming the teacher education sector, and finally, the cross-cutting themes of technology in education, and of course, research. The idea of HEIs being both teaching intensive and research intensive institutions, and that teaching and research cannot remain in watertight compartments, but they need to be amalgamated to promote entrepreneurship, to promote greater research productivity in terms of publications and patents, and then therefore a new body that the National Research Foundation will act as a catalytic body to promote research, bring about a collaborative uh, platform for HEIs and industry industry and uh, research laboratories coming together. So in in higher education, we have touched upon Uh, In fact, the focus in the policy uh, while making about a lot of changes in school education uh, and where actually school education might seem to be uh, very, very cohesively um, knitted together, the higher education requires parallel sets of reforms to take place, uh, both at the institutional level, at the students' level, at the teachers' level, and in the policy frameworks towards using technology and uh, allowing for the entire changes that we're looking at in the regulatory structure. So I think I'll leave it at this and uh, take the questions rather than having a monologue that may be able to clarify many of the queries that have come in from the participants and uh, what the CPPR team may have put together also. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Matt. Uh, uh, That's a good beginning for our uh, conversation. Whenever we talk about, whenever we discuss higher education in the country, uh, uh, the most common refrain is all about UGC, University Grants Commission. Uh, UGC is there everywhere. Uh, And uh, same same is the case with the many other higher education, uh, uh, regulators, regulatory bodies in higher education sector, AACP, uh, National Teachers uh, Training Institute, Uh, regulatory bodies and all. So the policy, in fact, talks about a higher education commission uh, to regulate, to oversee uh, the sector. Uh, Could you give some insights how, uh, what are the changes uh, we, uh, the committee has envisioned uh, while proposing National uh, Higher Education Commission and what would be the role or post the formation of National Higher Education Commission what would be the role of UGCs and other regulatory bodies? or Are they going to continue within a, in a, with a different mandate or all, all these bodies are going to be part of the commission?
1: Um, so, Dr. Danuraj, actually uh, the uh, reform in the regulatory system has been envisioned right uh, from National Knowledge Commission onwards. At that time, it was called as the uh, Indian Regulatory Authority for Higher Education, IRAHE. And then when we had uh, the UPA, it came out as the National Commission for Higher Education and Research, NCHER. Then we had uh, a committee uh, headed by MK CO, which looked into the reforms, and there they had suggested a higher education um, uh, enrichment research authority Um, uh, and that was HERA, then we dropped one of the E's and then we said it should be only a higher education regulatory authority, it became HERA. Finally, at the time when we were doing the NEP 2020, we had taken on board the existing efforts at trying to transform the regulatory system. Like you said, very correctly, the UGC, the AICT seem to be omnipresent in all areas of regulating higher education, and uh, the, uh, the UGC, when it was created in 1956 by an Act of the Parliament, uh, it was only supposed to be a funding body. And at that time, the sector itself was so uh, limited in, uh, in its size. It was not an, a very unwieldy uh, sector. But gradually, over a period of time, the U- UGC and the ICT, they not only were grant giving bodies, but they also became the regulators taking action against those who did not fall in line. They were the ones who were doing the accreditation through bodies like the NAC and the NBA. And they were also the academic standard setting bodies because they laid down the broad curricular frameworks and so on. Now, the NEP 2020 had one principle, and that was a light but tight regulatory system at the same time that this light but tight regulatory system would ensure that public and private institutions would be governed by the same set of norms and standards. So we thought of having four independent verticals and that, the, that was only the separation of powers, separating the four functions as a part of administrative prudence of regulation, academic standard setting, funding, and accreditation. These four functions, when performed by four independent bodies, would allow for greater effectiveness in the discharge of that role or the tasks that they are expected to carry out, at the same time not res- result in mutually conflicting powers being vis- residing in the same body. That is what led the committee to say that it should be done by four independent Verticals. Now, in the draft NEP, we had not visualized that if these four bodies were having issues of coordination and there were conflicts that were taking place, who would be that body which would take care of issues to resolve that kind of intervening conflicts that may happen? And it is when we were formulating the NEP 2020, based on feedback that came from Government of India Ministries and higher education institutions, for the benefit of those who are attending today, after the draft NEP 2019 was uploaded on the website of the ministry on 1st June 2019, till the date that the, the activity of actually formulating the NEP 2020 started, we had received as many as about 2 lakh suggestions. And one of those suggestions looked at this particular Uh, inadequacy, if I may say so, in the draft NEP, that if you create four independent verticals and you are silent about which is the body, because in the draft NEP, we have visualized a body which never came into being in the NEP 2020, and that is the Rashtriya Shiksha Ayog, which would be headed by the Honorable Prime Minister, and which would be like a standing body, which is a collegiate body of the center and the states taken together, being education being a concurrent list. And that was not something that was uh, seen as a very palatable recommendation. So while dropping the idea of a Rashtriya Shiksha Ayog or a National Education Commission and saying that there would be four independent verticals, that gap was sought to be filled in by a new architecture that we called as the Higher Education Commission of India. Now, when the HECI... Which is supposed to be a legislative exercise. It will be introduced in the parliament as a bill, which has to then become an act. When that comes into effect, the UGC, the AICT, the National Council for Teacher Education, and leaving out the Bar Council of India and the Medical Council of India, totally we have 17 professional councils which handle different areas architecture, pharmacy. Um, agriculture, um, nursing and so on. Leaving out MCI, which deals with medical education, and leaving out the Bar Council, all other bodies, that is the UGC, the ICT, the NCT, the Council of Architecture, all of them will concede their regulatory powers within this new architecture and they themselves will become nullified and their acts becoming nullified they will become they would be rendered null and void they would no longer be existing at all now the role of the, uh, the this new structure that we have the ugc and AICT and all these regu- com- professional councils concede their regulatory powers to the vertical looking after regulation that is the national higher education Le- regulatory council nherc now Within the UGC, you have bodies like NAC, which takes care of the assessment and accreditation. Whereas we have said that we will have a new structure that is the National Assessment Council, which will be a national accreditation council, which will be a super accreditor, which will subsume NAC, which will subsume NBA, and which will also have a lot of other multiple accrediting agencies, both governmental or even private, that can be created for accrediting all the higher education institutions within the country. The third vertical is going to be the funding part of it. So since the UGC's regulatory powers has gone to NHERC and it is no longer the funding body, the funding activity will be taken over by a new body that we create, that is the Higher Education Grants Commission. And this will take care of funding not just for the general institutions but for technical institutions because all these institutions, the idea of current structure of you know regular universities and technical institutions and so on, all this goes away because we are talking all of them will become holistic multidisciplinary institutions. So the HEGC will be responsible for doing the funding of the entire higher education system. The last function which the UGC and the AICT and others were doing, is setting down the academic standards for the courses that are being offered. And now since we are moving away from the silo-based education and you have courses in a combination that would be allowed, we have said that even so, you will have professional standard setting bodies which can lay down the academic standards of an academic course that is being offered within that vertical of architecture or engineering or law or whatever. And because you would have a sizable number of courses which are not within the ambit of the professional standard setting bodies, such as NCTE, for example, that is no longer there, there will be one that would take care for teacher education. What about art, science and commerce and so on? There would be one that would be called the General Education Council. So general education council with the composition of the professional standard setting bodies will take care of the function of laying down the academic standards and also prescribing what we may say that if that particular academic course would have certain standards to be acquired for following a profession that it has to follow, then that standards could also be laid down. But again, in that aspect, we would not be really able to prescribe all the professional standards. It will only be rather confining itself to the academic standards because the professional standards will have to be actually taken care of by those professional councils, which will concede their their regulatory powers but will continue to remain as professional standard-setting bodies, laying down both the academic standards and the professional standards. So if you're studying, let us say, for example, agriculture, and you or you're studying architecture, then the to become an architect, what are those norms and standards that you'll have to do when you're getting a professional license to become an architect? That will have to be prescribed by that professional council, professional standard setting body. So the HECI is an umbrella architecture. Once that bill has become an act, then no UGC, there will be no existence of UGC or AICT or NCT or any other regulatory bodies that we see, except, as I said, the Medical Council of India, because we have a new legislation that was brought out last year, that is in last year, meaning the year before that in 2019, and the Bar Council of India. Other than that, all the bodies would become a part and parcel of the Higher Education Commission of India.
0: Thank you, Ma. Thank you. Uh, that was very useful uh, because uh, I uh, this, is, this has been a discussion uh, in many of these education circles for some time. Uh, what are the changes uh, we could see uh, once uh, the, the National uh, Regulatory Commission uh, comes in the picture and what is going to happen with other uh, regulatory institutions that are existing now. I'm going to take you to another subject that is also commonly discussed. Uh, uh, this is about the graduation degree certificate certification, uh, famous or infamous attempt by Delhi University, and now the the, the this uh, policy talks about uh, options given to the students. Now students can exit after one year with a certificate, after two years with a diploma, after three years with a degree bachelor's certificate. Uh, could you could you explain um uh, what are the changes and also in the context of these controversies and uh, i mean um, i remember a lot of discussion was happening at the national level when delhi university tried to do i mean attempted to do a similar uh, course restructuring few years back uh, even though now people say that you know it was a great attempt <laughs> we didn't realize it uh, could you give some insights to these uh, suggestions on graduation posts, uh,
1: no, Dr. Danuraj, firstly, let me place on the floor that uh, education is a subject, not just that it is a part of the concurrent list, but the process in which you bring about reform is very, very important rather than the reform itself. And therefore, taking on board the consensus of all those who are going to tr- make that reform becomes very, very critical. Or again, you cannot have a reform that is confined in a given specific university and which is not there across nationally. You would create a, a kind of a really a catastrophe because students would who are migrating in India, we have the freedom of movement. And we are not saying that you confine yourself to the jurisdiction of a state alone to undergo an undergraduate program. So, you have the theory of migration where you migrate from one university, having completed some years of study and go on to the other. So, even in the NEP 2020, the idea of flexibility, which I said, as I said, it is a core principle that is there or a cardinal principle that's there in our chapter one, and which is also being reflected in the school education, where we are doing away with the hard separations of Uh, curricular co-curricular and extracurricular and actually building it is inbuilt from the class six onwards which is the middle stage in the new architecture of the five plus three plus three plus four that is from class six onwards where students will be making choices we are bringing in this flexibility to do away with discipline specific learning and do away with this idea that There is something that students will learn only arts or only science or only uh, commerce subjects or only vocational subject or only performing arts or only sports and so on. Uh, Amalgamate all of it, have an integrated approach because knowledge itself has become very integrated and cross-disciplinary or multidisciplinary. That idea is carried forward into the higher education, into this whole thing of the holistic multidisciplinary four-year undergraduate program. What is this? We are actually saying that a student can, if today you are offering a degree in arts or science or commerce or pharmacy or management or agriculture or law or engineering or technology or medicine or walk or sports and music and so on. These disciplinary boundaries will totally be vanishing When we allow a student to choose at the undergraduate level combination of subjects, some could be in social sciences, some in pure sciences, some in vocational education. So let me put it with subjects. Somebody takes, let us say, sociology or history, learns Hindi or English or any language, learns mechanical engineering, learns music, learns a sport, learns a vocational subject of carpentry, this combination is not seen as not possible at all. That means what today we are talking, that students, if they're doing, will take up only art subjects or pure sciences subject or applied sciences subject, that kind of rigidities in the curricular offerings will be removed and a student will be allowed to take up cross offerings in any combination that suits his or her aptitude, and where he or she feels that my capability is in doing these multiple courses. Why did we think of this? One is the individual is blessed with multiple intelligences, uh, multiple intelligences across the domains of knowledge, skills, and capabilities. Second, The kind of changes that are taking place because of technology, if we equip our young graduates with only discipline-specific knowledge and that discipline itself becomes irrelevant in the context of the technological changes or the economic changes that happen, then you're actually gearing up a student to remain unemployed or unproductive in the coming years. The third is that globally, we have moved towards multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary and transdisciplinary education. Because the nature of knowledge itself, we have said, Professor Yashpal has said that at the beginning, it is a porous thing. It is not something that is a concrete block. It is porous. And therefore, there is an assimilation of different disciplines into one discipline itself. If you see the porosity of knowledge and, therefore, the impacting of one discipline onto another, it is essential that India, which has which is blessed with the youngest youth population in the world, actually equip the students with the right kind of knowledge, skills and capabilities, embedding not just knowledge-based or application-based information, but also what we call the 21st century skills of cognitive learning, of critical thinking, of uh, communication skills, collaborative learning, and so on. So, the whole idea of currently discipline-specific institutions or discipline-specific undergraduate program will actually melt away because we are allowing for this kind of course offering. A very valid question that might come at this stage is how many institutions, higher education institutions in India today, can afford to offer that kind of multidisciplinary combination of courses. We are very much seized of the fact that the ground reality is there are very, very limited institutions which offer sing multidisciplinary education. That is why we have said in the policy, until all these institutions can move to become multidisciplinary by adding more departments or strengthening existing departments, we can have a concept of what we call higher education clusters. HEI clusters can be a group of institutions within a geographical vicinity coming together to allow a student to take the flexible combination of courses. And since we are sitting here right in Pochin. Let us say, for example, somebody does a course from Maharajas College, then wants to do a course in social work, which is not offered in Maharajas, does it from Rajagiri, or takes up a course in engineering, and therefore does it from an engineering college. And all this is possible because we are talking about two major things coming about. A national higher education qualifications framework, which will will lay down the equivalence of the courses that are being conducted, and the student, as far as the student is concerned, it is a customized academic bank of credit. So, in a class of, let us say, 30 students pursuing a undergraduate program in a given institution, those 30 students grade card or grade sheet will look unique because that student has taken multiple courses from different institutions based on, an, uh, based on an MOU that HEI institutions enter into. And as I said, public and private are treated on par. Therefore, it is not that there will be only government or government-aided, but that could also include purely private institutions, which will be a part of the HEI cluster. And the flexibility goes on further to say that If a course is not available in face-to-face mode, but it is available through an open university or through a distance education mode or as a MOOCs, then the student can even pursue that course through the ODL or through the MOOCs. So the flexibility in the combination of courses, multiple institutions, mode of learning, which could be purely, which could be a combination of face-to-face plus ODL plus MOOCs, And any of these combinations is good enough. Now comes the flexibility in the entry and the exit. As a signatory to the SDG goals, and the fact that knowledge itself is dynamic, and that one has to keep upgrading the knowledge, and that as a student, an adult student of 18 years, who is given the right to vote, and therefore should be given the credence of having intelligence to be quite focused, might decide to join the first year with multiple choice of courses and complete that, but does not continue his graduation immediately, decides to take a break. Whether he is experimenting for starting a startup, whether he is taking a break or a sabbatical because he has some health issues or whether he wants to pursue some vocation, we are not wanting to look into that at all. We think it is perfectly noble for an 18-year-old having done the first year of education or the second year of education to take a break, but the student is not treated as a dropout or a failure. Let me clarify here, because NEP 2020 was approved by the Union Cabinet on 29th of July 2020, this new architecture of the undergraduate program does not become effective from that date until the rules and regulations relating the rollout of the four-year program on a uniform date across higher education institutions within the country as a whole are notified. It could be 2022-23 academic year, or it could be further than that, but I don't anticipate it being before that. But if because we have to have the NHEQF, we have to have the academic bank of credit, We have to have the state governments and the HEIs coming on board to decide when they can actually move into this idea of a four-year program, three-year or four-year program, forming HEI clusters, allowing for the credit transfers between institutions and all that. All that we are saying is that every year, and also how much time will you allow for the student to come back? Suppose you are launching it from the 2022 to 23 academic year. Can we keep it for 10 years? Can we allow a student to come back in 2033? Or is it possible for an institution to keep a record like that? No, then we will think of maybe six years or eight years. These are modalities that are, that is work in progress. And that will again be tasked to some task force, which will have to look at all the institutions around this country And then arrive at, a. you see, the preparedness of institutions, the preparedness of the states are at different levels. But the rollout will have to be on a uniform date. And once it is rolled out, you cannot penalize a student who is doing it from University of Kerala and wanting to continue, let us say, in JNU or going to Mumbai University or any other place. It should be the same architecture which allows the student to move in seamlessly into the second year or the third year. The second important thing that we should understand over here is that the first year you get a certificate, second year you get a diploma, third year you can major in one subject and have a minor in another subject. If you do that, you get a bachelor's degree, which is like a general bachelor's degree. But if the student wishes to take on the fourth year, And he would would be treated as a graduate, completed, if third year is complete. It's not that he would be treated that you must come back and do the fourth year. The student can decide to exit altogether at third year. That exit option is, is not there at the first year or second year. He'll only have a certificate or only have a diploma. The person doing a third year will definitely get a bachelor's degree. Only we will not call it a bachelor's in multidisciplinary education. We will, we will still call it multidisciplinary, but in bracket, we will say major in, let us say, economics and minor of, let's say, psychology or mechanical engineering or whatever one course that the student has taken, depending upon the credits that the student has acquired. But suppose the student is going on to the fourth year and deciding to do two major subjects, then that would be a bachelor's in multidisciplinary education, majoring with two subjects in bracket that we may put it. It could be journalism or media studies, and it could be, um, let us say, community medicine, or it could be geriatrics, or it could be any combination or music and company, whatever. So two majors. So in the fourth year, if the student decides, I would do one major, and I would take up a major research project and submit a dissertation, then that would be a bachelor's in multidisciplinary education with research, enabling the student, such a student, to join the PhD program directly, bypassing the master's level altogether. But suppose a student has done a bachelor's with two majors and wants to go on to do the master's, he would only do one year of master's and then be eligible to do the PhD. A student who's done the three years of bachelor's will have to do a two years of master's. So the flexibility of the undergraduate program automatically calls about a flexibility at the master's level And therefore, the entry into the PhD also would be determined by that. But because the student has majors and minors, the current rigidity of taking up a PhD program where you are fixed to do it only in the discipline that you are only one single discipline, that would somewhat dissipate because if the student has done more credits in a discipline, even though that student is not majoring in that, that student may be allowed to pursue the PhD at that level. So also at the master's level. The flexibility, therefore, is in the duration, combination of courses, modes of learning, and also the institutions from where he or she is doing. Since all institutions would take what we envisaged in the NEP, about nearly 10 years or so to become multidisciplinary institutions, this whole change that we are envisaging over a 10-year period. In the interim, we will allow for the mapping of higher education institutions into HEI clusters so that this flexibility is not denied to the students. So if it is launched in 2022-23 academic year, multidisciplinary education will be allowed by students doing it from institutions which are a part of a cluster until and unless our institutions over a period of time evolved to become having all the departments. Now, let me tell you here with a pinch of salt, it is not possible in a resource-staffed country for all higher education institutions to offer medicine, agriculture, law, um, uh, pharmacy, nursing, all of it. So, the idea of an HEI cluster is bound to remain even beyond the 10 years for good some time, but Because we are allowing the ODL and MOOCs courses to come in, we will still be able to translate that multidisciplinary education.
0: So, uh, this is a question from my young colleague, uh, Agansha. Agansha, are you there? Could you ask? uh, Could you come on video and ask this question? It's a very interesting question. So, I would like you to ask question directly to ma'am. Agansha?
2: Yes. uh, So, basically, the policy talks about phasing out single stream uh, higher education institutions and replacing those with uh, multidisciplinary institutions because uh, mainly to address the issue of fragmentation of education in india as the policy talks about it but uh, as we know india is a very large and diverse country so the presence of you know thousands of colleges has always ensured a very easy access to education to everybody, especially students in rural areas. So my question was, would the setting up of multidisciplinary institutions, would it lead to a lot of homogenization and uh, centralization of education? And uh, if that's the case, how can we ensure uh, inclusion and access to all the students, uh, especially the ones living in uh, rural areas and the ones who do not have easy access to education with the setting up of these multidisciplinary institutions. So that was my question.
1: Uh, Thanks, Akansha. I think uh, for a young scholar that makes a lot of uh, sense uh, to ask that question and concern is really, really valid. I think I, um, it must have overlooked many of you when I said that this entire restructuring uh, has a caveat and that is on the aspect of equity and inclusion and ensuring that access in unserved and underserved areas uh, to higher education will not be uh, sort of uh, put at risk so that we keep you can't reach a GER, you can't be self-contradictory. You can't say you want to reach a GER target of 30 per, 30, uh, 50% by 2035. You can't say that SDG 4 of ensuring uh, inclusive and quality equitable education for all and promoting lifelong opportunities is something we commit ourselves to and then say that, no, we will not give you colleges in that part of the world at all. The idea of having single-discipline universities becoming multidisciplinary, whether they are colleges, which can be a part of a, a, a cluster, should not in any way preclude the educational access of those who are living in geographically inaccessible parts of the country. But at the same time, how the... the Dates at which each state and each area within a state also, intra also within a state, how fast they can move towards that is something where we have given good 15 years. We have said by 2035. The only standalone institutions which will be shut down in 2030 are the B it standalone colleges? All BED standalone institutions, which is a money-making machine creating substandard teachers not worth the salt to be called a teacher, will have to move towards offering four-year integrated BAC, BAD, or BABA programs or become part of multidisciplinary education. Now, when making a reform. If we had not talked about the aspect of ensuring the educational participation of the SEDGs, we cannot continue with an affiliation system, which is creating a huge number of unemployed graduates. The only satisfaction we are having is in terms of our statistics, we can say that so-and-so is a graduate. But that piece of paper is as good as just a chalan that you cut in any shop. If that cannot get you a relevant job and that is not making you, the, it is underemploying you, then that degree is not worth it. And that is not what India wants to have as having the largest youth population. So equity considerations, quality aspects, the requirements of global changes that are happening, all this need to be looked at in a combination. But since our preparedness in this country, which is so diverse, so what maybe Tripura might take about 12 years, you might find Maharashtra or you might find any other state maybe doing it in another five years. So across the states, the ability or the preparedness to achieve that will have to be factored in, but nowhere in this policy, in fact, this policy's principles, the cardinal principles, if you read through those 22 cardinal principles, talks of strengthening the public education system and ensuring that equity and inclusion would be there and correcting any imbalances that would be there, but that should not be a reason for continuing with an affiliation system which has outlived its purpose and affiliation is not the one which is provided enough riders to ensure that there would not be centralization we have agreed to the fact that education is a matter in the concurrent list and i don't think any other consultative process has taken that on board as much as this nep formulation has taken that on board yes We will have a lot of teething problems. We will have a lot of concerns as we go down the way. This is bound to be of any implementation. But I think if there is concerted effort by the state governments coming together with the government of India and the higher education institutions, as well as the social welfare organizations dealing with the educational needs of these segments of the society, and we are conscious. You see, when the government of India, Niti Ayob, gives you a list of about, I think it's about 168 aspirational districts, we have clearly said in Chapter 6 and in Chapter 14 that the colleges and schools in these aspirational districts will be emboldened and strengthened to ensure that public education is made available to people living in these aspirational districts. Aspirational districts are those districts which are either geographically inaccessible or dominated by SC population or ST population or Nexalite affected or having a huge turbulent area and therefore needs special interventions. And we have even said we will set up special education zones and create social inclusion funds and gender inclusion funds to address these kinds of social and economic imbalances in educational
0: participation of the ACD. Thank you, ma'am, for your time. I'm sure we will continue this dialogue. Uh, We are not going to stop with these two (laughs) webinars. I think this is a continuous process as a public policy institution. I think it's our responsibility also to uh, debate and discuss and also to engage government if we could help them in uh, implementing some of these policy provisions.